Um, it's, it's wonderful to see you all here. Um, I hope you're really looking forward to this uh, debate. Uh, we're very excited. Um, I'm Charlie from Christian Union. It's David. Um, and <laughs> from the Atheist Society. Um, and we're really excited about tonight. Um, we just wanted to make you aware that, that we as a Christian Union, there's some slides behind us, some flyers going around. Um, also, have a, a, have a week. Uh, maybe you're, you're thinking things through. You're from the Atheist Society and you're not really sure what Christians believe. Um, do come along to such things. I think you've got an equivalent week. Uh, yeah, sorry. A uh, week after next, we've got our like reason week of events. So we've got five events during the week. The week after next, um, and uh, Jonathan will be giving a talk for us on the Tuesday. That's February the ninth. And our, our weekly events are uh, every Monday at uh, 7 or 7 30 pm. We're normally in the Nuffield Theatre. So uh, if you're interested at all in, in, uh, in tonight's event, then uh, maybe join our Facebook group and have a look at what events we have on during the year. And everybody's more than welcome to join us. Yeah. I think the only safety thing is that there are fire exits down the side. Um, and now we'd like to hand over, hand over to Bradley, who's going to be chairing the debate for us. Yeah, once again, thank you very much to everyone for being here this evening, um, and a special thank you to our guest speakers. Um, our motion this evening is, is God required for morality? So speaking the yes side of that motion is Miriam and Peter, and speaking the no side is Jonathan and Boaz. So, um, just a quick few words about the format of the debate this evening. Um, each side will get a seven-minute opening speech, which will be followed by a five-minute rebuttal speech for each side, um, and concluding the first part of the debate with a five-minute concluding speech from each side. Then we'll launch into questions from you, the audience. Um, we'll have that for several minutes, and then we'll finish with a five-minute closing speech from each side. So without further ado, I'd like to invite the first speaker from the yes side of the debate to um, lead us off. So is it Miriam starting first? Yep. Excellent. Off you go. Cool. So without a God, there would be no good, no right, and no wrong. To put it in syllogistic form, one, if objective moral duties exist, then a God exists. Two, objective moral duties do exist, and so three, therefore a God exists. Moral values are either objective, that is independent of the subject, or subjective, not independent of, but relative to the subject. Moral objectivism claims that there are moral truths that don't depend upon our belief in them. For instance, one culture may believe in cannibalism, and another may believe cannibalism is wrong. In order to argue that at least one of these cultures is wrong, one must be a moral objectivist. The objectivist needn't claim to know which culture is wrong to claim at least one of them is wrong. Suppose one group of people thinks the sun goes around the, sun goes around the earth, and the other thinks the opposite. Science is going to say, these are equally true claims. But rather, at least one of these contradictory claims is wrong. Our coming to know that the earth goes around the sun was a matter of, was a matter of discovering truth, not inventing truth. In the same manner, moral objectivists see ethics as a matter of discovering objective moral facts about right and wrong. They are valid and binding whether anyone believes in them or not. The examples of the dispute of the earth rotating around the sun illustrates the point that just because people disagree about something doesn't mean there's no fact to the matter. Moral objectivism is often charged with being dangerous because it causes us to condemn other moral outlooks and enforces an own outlook on us without tolerance for difference. This objection is wrong because it confuses objectivism with absolutism. Objectivism says they're objective moral values. Absolutism says is the claim to know absolutely what is right and wrong. 
and is sometimes accompanied by the idea that those who disagree should be forced to toe the line. In fact, it is moral subjectivism that is dangerous because it eliminates moral debate between different cultures and peoples. Human quarrelling or debate presupposes a shared set of norms without which debate would be impossible. Quarrelling means trying to show that the other person is wrong. The subjectivists viewing the Nazi atrocities could not say it was worse than a liberal society and therefore could not object or interfere with that regime on moral grounds. They could only interfere or object on non-moral grounds, e.g. we don't like that and we're stronger than you, which isn't a good moral reason. Furthermore, anyone condemning intolerance is appealing to an objective moral value that we objectively ought to be tolerant. If they are appealing to an objective moral value, then they are being self-contradictory. If you value tolerance, embrace moral objectivism. Subjectivism also makes it impossible to criticise others since we've made right and wrong a matter of personal preference. This means practically if a Westerner who judges female circumcision to be wrong and yet says, it's wrong of you to judge, ends up condemning themselves. It's only if we reject moral relativism that we are free to promote tolerance and open-mindedness. Furthermore, great moral reforms have come about when one person or group of people has stood out against the ethical assumptions of their generation and by doing so have not just changed things but changed them for the better. The abolition of the slave trade came about because people believed it to be objectively wrong and worked to convince other people of this truth. But if subjectivism is accepted, then the change from a society that traded people to a society that didn't trade people was not progress, because for the subjectivists, there is no such thing as moral progress, only change. Our moral intuitions tell us that it's wrong to torture a baby for fun. I have a number of basic moral intuitions about the Holocaust and the slave trade. I needn't be an absolutist about these claims. My intuitions could be wrong. But if it's possible to have mistaken moral intuitions, then moral objectivism is true. And finally, if objective moral values exist, a God exists. For morality to be objective, it cannot be rooted in finite persons, but must transcend both individual and corporate humanity. As C.S. Lewis states, the law of right and wrong must be something above and beyond the facts of human behaviour, a real law which we did not invent and which we know we ought to obey. However, because objective morality prescribes and obligates our behaviour, it must be rooted in something personal, since only persons can obligate and prescribe behaviour. This is incompatible with a naturalistic worldview, because a command only makes sense when there are two minds involved, one giving the command and one receiving the command. Nature doesn't give commands because it doesn't have a mind in that sense. Atheists, of course, can be good, but only because God exists. Morality isn't a superficial feature of this world. Things bear the moral properties, good or bad, insofar as they resemble God. Being God's image bearer means that atheists can recognize the same moral truths as the theist because this faculty is given to him by God. Theists, theists readily admit that non-believers can know moral truths, but knowing epistemology must be distinguished from being ontology, the latter being the more fundamental. Epistemologically, the atheist is right to say that they can recognize that they are endowed with dignity, conscious, right, duties, and the basic capacity to recognize right from wrong. It's no surprise that non-theists know the same sort of moral truths as believers. Ontologically, however, a non-theistic explanation of the roots of this knowledge is inadequate. Why think impersonal, valueless processes such as natural selection would produce valuable, rights-bearing persons? The more plausible metaphysical context for grounding human rights and dignity and morality is this. We have been created with a moral constitution by a supremely valuable being, and we are hardwired to function properly by living moral and relational lives. So if humans have intrinsic rather than instrumental value, the deeper, more natural explanation is a personal, supremely valuable God. 
source of goodness and creator of morally responsible agents. If intrinsic value does not exist from the outset of evolutionary <coughs> processes, its emergence from non-valuable processes is difficult to explain. It doesn't matter how many non-personal and non-valuable components we happen to stack up from valuelessness to valuelessness comes. The naturalist position offers no good reason to think that valuable, morally responsible human beings should emerge from valueless processes. Theism offers a far more plausible context, context for human value and morality, which flows readily from a wise, supremely valuable being to that being's valuable image bearers. I'd like to thank Miriam for that excellent speech, and now I'd like to invite the first speaker from the no side of the debate to open their case. Just a reminder of the motion, for those of you who have joined us a little bit late, the motion this evening is, is God required for morality? I'd just like to say before I start, thank you very much to everyone for turning up. It's awesome to see so many uh, interested people in this age-old debate, so that's really, really cool. Uh, thanks to you guys for organising it and sharing it, and also... Um, we are debate virgins, right? So these guys know what they're talking about in, in a kind of experiential way. So uh, good luck us. Um, just bear with us. Be nice. Okay, so is God required for morality? The simple answer is no. Capuchins, bonobos and other primates certainly don't require God to exhibit moral behaviour. Descriptively, nor do non-theists. In fact, in the biggest ever survey of philosophers, they were split pretty much three ways between consequentialism, which is the belief that uh, morality is derived from the consequences of an action, uh, virtue ethics, which is the idea that humans uh, flourish as humans, and that's what, how you derive uh, your moral value, and deontology, that there is some objective basis for morality, whether that be some platonic realm or some other such way. Now, none of these paths require God. Indeed, divine command theory is the only ethical framework that really needs God, and that is adhered to by a tiny minority of philosophers overall. Philosophers have been having this debate for thousands of years, and uh, collectively they've come to pretty much dismiss divine command theory apart from those who are theistic, which is actually only 14% of philosophers. Uh, now, on DCT, divine command theory, the idea that God commands uh, actions and they are good because God commands them, I have some dozen or so problems with, uh, with that theory, and I'm happy to share them at the end, but this is a massive sort of area of philosophy, so we probably don't have time to go through everything, which is a real shame, because we need to build our own case as well as topple theirs, obviously. So how do we create a coherent moral framework without God? Well, we clearly do, because we can see that humans are clearly moral without needing to refer to God. And often, when they do refer to God in various societies around the world, world, we cringe with moral embarrassment or horror. Think of the Christian right in the United States, or if not, then the Islamic fundamentalists in Europe of ISIS. Uh, morality is, as far as we're concerned, built up out of psychology, empathy, and rationality. Roughly speaking, and by looking at empirical data, when we are being emotional and intuitive, some claim that we are often non-consequentialist, so sort of more rule-based. But when we are rational and use our deliberative faculties, we are more consequentialist. Indeed, some 90%, and this is 90% of you guys in experiments, doesn't matter what your beliefs are, um, would pull the lever in the famous trolley experiment. So you would kill one person instead of five. But it turns out that that percentage is swapped when you have to push a fat man over the bridge to stop the trolley, to kill, to not to kill the five people. So morality is clearly... Well, it's morally psychologically psychological or psychologically moral, we are, 
You can drop a bomb to kill 80,000 by pulling a lever much more easily than shooting a single person in the head. So empathy and emotions and feelings are super, super important for morality. And without them, it's, it's defunct. Um, so if God wanted us to be moral creatures, why has he given us two systems which work to different ends? So Daniel Kahneman, the psychologist, would call the system one and system two, our intuitive versus our rational. Why has he allowed whole subsets of people to have dysfunctional empathy systems who find it far more difficult to be ordinarily moral? Now, I've taught certain autistic children who literally cannot be particularly moral in many ways that you'd see because they have dysfunctional empathy systems. Uh, they can't put themselves out of their own bodies in, in a sort of abstract way. Um, so, of course, morality and altruism make perfect sense within the context of evolutionary biology and psychology. Morality is a functional thing in, in social species. We see this in other species and we see it in ourselves. Interestingly, it appears that even though theists hate consequentialism as a, quote, and this comes from Peter's previous debating partner, William Lane Craig, a terrible ethic, um, they and God are both consequentialists. All theodicies, now this is answers to why there's so much evil and suffering in the world, um, uh, given that there's an omni-god that exists, use a line, something like, there must be a greater good when faced with whatever bad there is. Now this is at heart a consequentialist approach, whether it's, you know, because we have free will, it allows us to have free will, builds our soul, or a tsunami killing 240,000 people, or Noah's flood killing all of humanity, bar eight, and all the ecosystems of the world, there is some unknown proposed greater good that comes about. Now, that is consequentialist. The moral grounding of that is grounded outside of God. So God himself <laughs> doesn't need God for his own morality. Um, and actions within whole swathes of the Bible, history, present reality, including the very sacrifice of Jesus, who was used instrumentally to atone for, this, for, the, uh, for, the, um, for the wrongs of humans, uh, he was being used instrumentally, consequentialist. So it's actually worse than this because the Bible does actually give reasons for this, for bad things like the slaughter of the Canaanites and the Amalekites. And these are clearly not good enough justifications. If you read them in the Bible, wow, justifying genocide, no, that's just, it's, it's not done very well. Um, and besides, how does anyone know whether their God is the right grounder of morality? There are even more levels of wrong to this whole moral argument. This pragmatic uselessness is well defined in the argument from divine miscommunication. There are some 42,000 different denominations of Christianity in the world, all claiming their own right uh, to moral rectitude. So you need to ground any position normally in either an axiom, a self-evident truth, a circle, or an infinite regress. Uh, the axiom is usually what's preferred to ground anything. So with consequentialism, the non-derivative currency for moral value is often seen as happiness, pleasure, or well-being because it's self-evidently good. So what this jargon all means is basically when you keep asking why you did that, why you did that, why you did that, eventually you get to something like because it makes me happy. Why is that good? Because it's self-evidently good. It's good that I'm happy. It's good that we're happy. We, we enjoy being happy. However, when you do that with theists, they end up with, well, because God. So that cannot appeal to moral reasoning. Why did you do that? Why, why, why? God. <laughs> and that ends the conversation. And so, as, as an axiom, God, I don't think, is good enough to ground morality. Uh, but if you want to appeal to moral reasoning, then you have to appeal to reasons outside of God, so you don't need God. So grounding morality merely be becomes an arbitrary pastime for these two. Um, to argue, as our opponents do, that morality is objective and grounded in God creates a problem. Immanuel Kant claimed that humans couldn't access the zing and dick, the thing in itself. We are all experiencing machines and everything we experience we do subjectively. So even if there are objective moral rules or whatever, 
out there, we still have to subjectively analyze them and interpret them through our filters. So it really doesn't matter whether there is objective morality or not, it's what we do. Um, finally, morality is an abstract idea. I'm a conceptual nominalist, you can ask me about that later. Abstract ideas do not exist other than in the conceiving mind of the agent. If all sentient beings died, uh, there would be no morality. So we clearly construct morality from the world around us as a concept without ontic reality. It doesn't exist in some ether. In the same way that we might look at a picture and create concepts of aesthetic beauty in our minds using our conceptual frameworks, we build up moral evaluations of actions. Is that picture objectively beautiful? No, it does not have properties of beauty. It has properties, natural properties, to which we conceptually apply beauty. And the same is with morality. We apply our framework to actions such as emotions, rationality, and empathy. Sorry for hogging 20 seconds. <laughs> Thank you very much, Jonathan, for that excellent speech. And uh, now I'd like to invite uh, Boa, no, sorry, I'd like to invite Peter to open the rebuttal stage <laughs> no, of this no, debate no. for the uh, side arguing that God is required for morality. Okay, thank you very much. I'd like to uh, add my uh, thanks to the, the organisers, and it's great to see the Atheist Society and the CE Society coming together on the sort of neutral ground, as it were, of the debating society and all collaborating uh, to organise this. So I'm very happy to, to be here to take part. Um, Miriam laid out our uh, argument for connecting belief in a God. Uh, to belief in objective morality, uh, with simply uh, two premises leading to a conclusion that follows from it. Um, one part of that argument, of course, is belief that there is such a thing as objective uh, moral duties, moral values, uh, and so on, that are discovered uh, rather than invented. And it, it, it seemed to me I, that I caught uh, from what Jonathan was saying at the end there, that only really started addressing that issue right at the, the end of his opening speech where he started talking about uh, Kantian epistemology and uh, the way in which we as subjects apply our notions to things in the world in order to judge them. And, and I, I think I got the sense that he was, he was saying we kind of project our, uh, our subjective notions of things onto the world uh, and that things outside of us as subjects don't really uh, bear these properties, uh, particularly moral properties and properties of beauty objectively. Um, if I've misunderstood him, uh, I'm sure uh, they'll be able to uh, come back and correct that misunderstanding uh, later. So I think they were questioning the objectivity of value. Uh, if they are doing that, I think there are significant problems with doing that, uh, not only in going against just basic moral intuitions of the, of the kind that Miriam talked about, uh, but the way in which it would actually undermine the very notion of debate and, and, and rationality. Uh, that they would take away the grounds for doing that, and in a sense you would be, you'd be saying, um, here's an argument for why you should uh, believe that there are no objective moral values. Uh, but if, I, if there are no objective moral values, then there's no objective should to why I ought to believe that conclusion, uh, or why I indeed ought to pay respectful attention to an argument for that conclusion, which would undermine the grounds for making such an argument uh, in the first place. So I'd be interested to see a, a response to that issue. On the other side of the ledger, uh, as it were, uh, was uh, a premise connecting, saying that if there are these objective moral values, they must be somehow grounded in God. Uh, and there was a lot uh, there to go through. Uh, I think that the important thing to, to highlight would be to say 
Um, we're not necessarily espousing the divine command theory, which would say something is, is good or bad simply because God says so. Uh, rather, we would take an essentialist position that says that God's essential and necessary character is itself the good, uh, as Plato would have said it, that God's character defines uh, what is good and what is bad, and that God, of course, issues commands in line with his character, and, and those, those commands uh, explain the prescriptive nature of morality as we experience it, and the fact that that, that that character and those commands come from a personal source are also able to explain the obligatory nature of morality. We can't be prescribed or obligated uh, to something that is, is non-personal, something impersonal. So a personal ground of moral, moral obligation and prescription that is itself essentially necessarily good rather than, than arbitrary, I think does give a coherent grounding to the understanding uh, of morality. Um, Kant's epistemology, I think, is self-contradictory anyway because he says of the thing itself that we can't know anything about the thing itself, but that, of course, is a claim to know something about the thing itself. Um, animals, they might sometimes exhibit behavior uh, that falls in line with our notions of morality, but I don't think moral uh, animals are really moral uh, creatures. Um, when the lion uh, eats the lamb, it eats the lamb, but it doesn't murder the lamb, and you don't put the lion on trial for doing it. So I, 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 that's fine. But then talking about you know evolutionary roots of, of empathy and psychology and so on, um, that's all talking about moral epistemology, and we can grant as, as much as you like about moral epistemology, and we can come up with moral theories that are coherent that don't mention God, but that's all moral epistemology. The real question on the table here is, however it is that we come to know about or to discover these moral truths and duties, what explains their existence, what best explains uh, the nature of our moral experience of these moral facts that we discover rather than invent. Thank you. I'd like to thank Peter for his excellent speech, and now I'd like to invite Boaz to continue the case for the no side of this debate. Okay. So, um, one thing I was going to say about uh, her claim at the start. Uh, Miriam. Miriam, sorry. I'm terrible with names. Anyway. <laughs> so, about her argument at the start that if uh, objective morals exist, uh, then God exists. One, I have a problem with that premise. Uh, I can actually grant that objective morals could exist, but a god necessarily doesn't have to exist to be the cause of those uh, objective morals. So I could take on a platonic ideal, I could be kind of supernatural and say there exist platonic ideals, so there exists a platonic ideal of the good that's separate from this universe, or whatever or related, and there just is goodness. And I said I could say that that exists forever or whatever, and what I mean by good is anything that resembles that. So I don't even need to posit a god, and Plato didn't really need to. I could even uh, posit something closer to what Buddhists believe and about karma. I could even say we live in a karmistic universe, and I don't need to really invoke any god. I can just say, yep, there are objective morals outside of my brain, and I could use this other uh, supernatural explanation, and I don't have to evoke god. So I kind of do not accept the validity of the first premise. I think, can I add something there? Because I Absolutely. think actually objective is a bit of a problem because no one's yeah. really defined it. Yeah, yeah, you so, really so someone like Walter Sinner Armstrong is a moral philosopher who says objective morality yeah. exists, but it exists in the fact that we, we causing harm to others is, is 
objectively bad, yeah. right? as in that there is harm and we can test the amount of harm. And, and yeah, exactly. in that, the, the objective objectivity of morality is grounded yeah. in in the consequences. Yeah. Which and also I could say I could say like it's objective in a uh, in a sense, but not separate from us. In the fact that we all have roughly the same sensations, emotions, and mental faculties that help us construct the same idea of morality. So I could say it exists objectively in, in that kind of way. We all have um, kind of we all have a kind of idea of what is moral. It's pretty much the same. I think there was a conflation as well with uh, subjectivism and relativism. Yeah. So subjectivism isn't relativism. You can have a subjective universal moral system. So that if if we all um, morality, do, if we conceptually, abstract ideas don't exist, if, if all our minds were kaput, abstract ideas wouldn't exist. So our minds construct abstract ideas, morality yeah. is abstract. So, but, but the things to which it refers are natural properties which do exist. And so, you know... We're all it, talking about the same thing. Uh, yeah, so I, th I think there was some confusion with, with subjectivism <coughs> and relativism there. But I want to look at also... Uh, you were talking about essentialism, which is basically divine command theory in another in another yeah, way. Because what the divine command theory is, it has an answer to the Euthyphro dilemma, which is that um, is are things good because God is good, or yeah. in, in which case it, because God commands them, type thing, yeah. or or are they good outside of God? Good, yeah. So so what uh, people like Peter will say is, well, actually they're good because of God's nature. So they take it one step back, but it's exactly the same thing. So if God's nature is just good. Then it's arbitrary, and you can't uh, apply moral reasoning to any moral action. You have to say, why is that good? Because God. And you say, why is rape bad? He can't tell us why rape is bad. I can tell you it's because it harms the other yeah. person intentionally. He has to say, because it, beca because as soon as he says because, and then starts appealing to moral reasoning, it's grounded in moral reasoning. Yeah. So he has to say, because God... It's essential, but yeah. then how does he know that? How does he know the character of God without revelation? So then he has to look at things like the Bible, and the Bible is pretty ambivalent about, about rape. In fact, it actually sort of commands it in a number of places. So, so before you say all, I suggest you read the Old Testament. I've got a quote here. If you want. Yeah, I suggest you read the Old Testament. So the slaughter of the Amalekites, you can do, you can take the woman and you, uh, as, yeah, as you use want. Them and in Leviticus, um, that you know, if should a, a man rape a maid who isn't promised or wed to anybody, that, you know, you should marry her. Yeah, they're forced marriage. If, 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 a, if a man rapes a woman, in rather fact, than being the punished only, for it, they the, have to be forced marriage. Absolutely, that's the only so, mention of rape in the entire Bible. So if you're talking about essentialism, then, then actually you can't morally judge. In fact, God can't judge himself. Because if you to ask God, why are you good? All God could say is God. Yeah, because he can't defer to moral reasoning. And this is the whole problem with the... the the position is that they no. cannot defer to moral reasoning. It's one of the fundamental problems with divine command theory and this kind of essentialism. Yes. So where it was we would defer well, to consequentialism, the consequences of an action in some in some manner, we'll say that causes harm, and we can measure that using scientific inductive techniques. We we have really good reason why that's a bad thing to do. That society would, would suffer, yada yada yada. Um, they can't do that, or if they do, it means that they're using several techniques, but also they haven't answered how God is also consequentialist and so on. Excellent. I'd like to thank uh, Jonathan. <laughs> I'd like to thank Jonathan and Boaz for their excellent rebuttal, and I'd now like to invite the speakers from the yes side of the debate to conclude this section before the Q&A session. Yeah, I, I, I kind of was smart enough to, to vote at the point. I, I think...
I think you failed to um, even start to address one of the main points I made, which is that humans have objective moral value, not just objective moral value, but we have values as human beings. We have intrinsic instead of instrumental. No, I, I don't recall that. But anywho. I'm going to find the detail right now. Okay, cool. But anywho. You said that we didn't have an answer to rape is bad, which I just found fascinating. Rape is bad because humans have intrinsic moral worth and we're made in the we're made in the image of a valuable, infinitely valuable being. And if we're made in his image, that means we're all infinitely valuable. And if you really, honestly, if you take God out of the equation, I think what you're left with is Darwinism. And I think everyone should read Darwin for themselves because what Darwin had to say was that your value is based on how adaptive, how much you have adapted to your environment. So the smarter person is more valuable than the less smart person. He even used it to justify racism, but that's besides the point. Not every human being had value. You only had value if we could perform in some way. With God, that's not the case. It doesn't matter how well you perform. It doesn't matter how intelligent you are. It doesn't matter how beautiful you are. It's not about survival of the fittest. It's you're mine, you belong to me, and therefore you have infinite value. And it doesn't really depend on anything you do. Um, I don't think he has an answer to why we could have intrinsic human rights without God. Like, I took a moral philosophy lecture in first year, and the first thing the lecturer said is we have to assume human rights. You had to assume it, because you can't ground it in anything to do with Darwinism or naturalism. Uh, you just come in very, very briefly, just to say, um, trying to ground uh, ethics in scientifically measurable data I think gets you into the, into the classic is all problem. This is the way Sam Harris tries to go in his, his recent book. And you, of course, you face the question, okay, well, you can measure that if I torture a baby for fun, it's, it causes certain dysfunctions within the operation of that organism. But why, but then you have to bring in a moral evaluation of that description of reality to have an evaluation of it. So you do face the redress, whereas when you're uh, talking about, you say, well, opinion to God's nature, is arbitrary. Well, of course, if, if God's nature is is essentially and necessarily what it what it is, God is by definition the greatest possible being who exists necessarily. On on that kind of account of essentialism, th there's God is the least arbitrary thing there is why uh, is God, in, why in is reality. Good? Well, every every moral thing is going, going to have a backstop somewhere or ultimate stopping point. Once once you get to, it's a necessary truth. To, to ask the question, well, why is that necessary truth true? Uh, is, is to misunderstand the, the nature of the object that you're that you're you're, you're questioning. Uh, God is the, the greatest possible being, the being of maximal value, the, the maximally beautiful possible thing that there is. God is descriptive of the good. It, it, it's like asking, you know, why is the Platonic ideal of the good good? Uh, is it assessed by some other, you know, further Platonic ideal behind that? But a platonic ideal, apart from being an abstract object, which Johnny doesn't think exists anyway, how does it explain, again, back to the, the obligatory or the prescriptive nature of morality as we experience when an abstract object is an impersonal reality? Yep. So, um, <laughs> I literally have so many things to say. But um, there was an interesting, you started talking about how we have intrinsic value, and you said the goodness is grounded in, in, in the fact that rape is wrong because we have intrinsic value in the image of God. But you, you 
you don't answer the question, why is it bad to devalue a, a human being? And this is a point that, that I can keep asking the why, why, why. See, it sounds self-evidently like bad, doesn't it? But you have to use either moral reasoning that gets you so far and so far. And actually, Peter is right. Every claim made, and this applies to every claim you make as well. So it's funny that you say it's arbitrary because it gets back to some sort of starting point. But actually, every claim does. Every claim, it's called Munchausen's trilemma. Every claim either has a circular, in which case it's pretty unsound because you just say, I believe that because that, why do you believe that because that, or an infinite regress, which is really problematic because it carries on going forever, or you have an axiom. An axiom is a self-evident truth, and you just have to ground something in the axiom. Now, we are grounding our moral system in the axiom of happiness, pleasure is good, pain is bad. Right? If you don't get a better non-derivative yeah. currency in the world. And they don't it, have yeah. that. Yeah. They defer to, well, God is good. Necessarily, God is good. This is this bare assertion that comes out of nothing. Well, how do you know? He says nothing about rape. How do you know rape isn't actually good? We know it's not good because and it harms absolutely. people. And how do you even know his essential qualities? How do you know he's not a liar? You know? Like, I mean, he can, his essential qualities would just be good if there is essential qualities. How do you know he isn't a liar? How do you know he isn't hateful? How do you know he isn't vengeful? Without appealing to moral Well, without reasoning. appealing to something else. You've I got to appeal to something else. I guess else. by definition, if he was a liar, if he was evil, then he wouldn't be God anymore. Hang on a minute. <laughs> how, how, how does that make any sense? Can I just say... No, well, hang on a minute. You just said that the definition of good is God and his qualities. I said, what if his qualities were different? And you said he wouldn't be God. What does that mean? That doesn't make any sense. How do you know like, that, that he wouldn't his have quality, you, Your position is his qualities, you know, the fact that he's God makes his qualities good. So if I say if he's a liar or whatever, you've just got to say Let me put that into an example. So this is the example that's often used. The direction of causality for this approach is that God is good and God has lovingness, mercy and justice and all these things. But they are not intrinsic value, intrinsically valuable. This is their position because this is an established uh, uh, position that's been critiqued. So the direction of causality is God is good, he has these things, and just by him having them, they are essentially good. But you can't actually say loving. So if I gave a homeless person five pounds, you're homeless, I give you five pounds. I give them that to you because I actually want you to use that and to make the world a better place in some small you way. Know, make I'm you using happy. moral reasoning, yeah. it'll make you happy, blah, blah, blah. But that kindness, if you're a theist, that kindness is merely a reflection of God, and that's it. There is no, I can't use moral reasoning to say why that was a good thing. All I can say is reflective of God. And the property just becomes a reflectiveness of yep. God. And, and incidentally, on um, Satan, Satan, if God is omnipotent, before you, you all clap Satan, whoop, whoop, whoop. God is omnipotent, Satan is God's middle manager, because if God wanted to get rid of Satan, he could do it like that. Absolutely. The fact that Satan and hell exists means that he's managing it on behalf of God. So before you clap anything to do with Satan, know that Satan is there by the will of God if you believe in Satan. Yeah, otherwise omnipotence doesn't make a God. damn bit of sense. But um, as for animals, actually most moral philosophers and moral psychologists and biologists will agree that there's a sliding scale of morality which is dependent on awareness. So when you were talking about lions, uh, we actually know lots of stuff to about the morality. If you look at Franz de Waal, Duval and his work on the, the fairness of capuchin monkeys, and they get really, really annoyed about unfairness and this kind of stuff. We know loads about uh, the functional dogs, use of dog, dogs, uh, of loads of animals. So you, you're just absolutely wrong there on, yeah. on animals not being moral. There is a sliding scale, though. Yeah. Is that over or one minute? Got one minute left. 
Oh. Awesome. Yeah, I would say it's grounded also in things like, you say, what is it grounded in? It is grounded in human um, capacities and human emotions. That's what it's grounded in. And we all have exactly the same ones. So you say, what makes an action good? Our rationality and our empathy tells us that that action is good. I don't really have to... Here's an example, yeah. Hitler, genocide, bad. God, Amalekite genocide, Canaanite genocide, good. Exactly. How do you ground that? We know that, 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 that genocide is bad, and we use moral reasoning to do that. You, Chris, sorry, I don't mean to say that derogatively, Christians have to take that as being good because God commanded it as part of his, as an outpouring of his essence. Yeah. Okay? So unless you're going to defer to moral reasoning for that, then that is necessarily good in some way. And if you're going to say it's good for a greater good, then actually you're grounding your morality in consequentialism. The and Bible yourself, is yeah. jam-packed full of consequentialism. God is the ultimate consequentialist. Why did God kill all of humanity bar eight in Noah's flood if it wasn't for a greater good? And as theists, you are... Ah. Had a great one. I'd like to thank all of, their, all of the speakers so far in the debate for their speeches. Um, we now move on to half an hour's uh, question time. So, members of the audience, um, I'd like to remind you of the motion for this debate, which is, is God required for morality? So if your questions could be sort of centred around that, that motion, that would be excellent. If your questions could be brief, that would also be excellent. Not um, like Satan. And um, I'd also appreciate um, if the panel could keep their responses to the point. Um, so, um, so um, questions for the audience, please raise your hands. I'll try and get a variety. Um, you, sir? I, I propose that God, God is not even a moral person. He is immoral. For is this not the God who is responsible for the persecution of women, for the persecution of gay people, for the persecution of transgender people? For is he not the God who is evil, who is horrible, who spreads evil around the world. I mean, you know, this, this God is, there, is not a nice it, God. The Bible is full of... Is there a question there? Okay. My, my so, answer would be yes. So <laughs> I think, I think you, you guys Hell need yeah. to answer why is God moral, let alone just, you know... Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you very much for that question. So Passion, I'm going to put this to the yes side. Is God moral? <laughs> On our view, God is the very uh, paradigm and standard of, of goodness per se. Uh, God is essentially and necessarily good. Uh, God is loving, just, etc., etc. Um, what you're uh, raising are uh, issues uh, about uh, um, people's treatment of other people. Um, which some of those people may think is justified with certain readings of theological texts, uh, which one would question whether or not they're correct about that. But your basic point is that you think some of those interpretations uh, are, are wrong, are, are evil. This means, I presume, that you think objectively wrong and evil, not just something that you happen not to prefer. Um, so you're granting one of the premises of the moral argument. Not necessarily. In, in, in raising the objection. If, if you mean that these, these mistreatment of 
of transgendered people, etc., is objectively wrong. Um, the comeback question on, on the point of debate would be, what, how do you explain and account for that objective wrong existing? What is the best in grounding of it? It needn't necessarily be in a God that you think is revealed in a particular text. I think these theological issues get us off from the main philosophical issue of is, is a God. The question you know, isn't is the God of the Bible or the God of the Quran or the, you know, or the God of the Book of Mormon necessary for morality, but is at least a, a God required? Okay, we just have a, a response from the notes yeah, of this debate first. Yeah, well, I, well, I was just going to say, you have, to, you have to posit a God of doctrine, like, otherwise what the hell are you positing? You know, you're saying, oh, a God is required, we're not sure which and we're not sure what he says and we're not sure what the hell the And then you say, well, he must have goodness, but I don't know what goodness looks like because it's not been revealed, but so therefore I'm going to use moral reasoning to find what goodness is. My question was going to be, how do you know what goodness is? You said God necessarily has goodness. That's just saying God has godness. That's yeah. all that means. It has no meaning. You you are just merely circularly arguing or asserting and also, who's something that is lacking in a, meaning. If you're not prescribing a God of doctrine, who's godness? Each God has different kind of godliness. Each God is uh, prescribing different morals, so you know that gets us nowhere. I you are, you are saying you've got to wrap up your man's question here. Is and also, you know, my God, the Bible. <laughs> I'm just saying, the Old Testament did command the stoning of homosexuals. So I don't yeah. think that that is a that's that's something that's mistranslated or misquoted, flat out said. And the man was a man, man. Yeah. So, so we'll, we'll have a quick. Just, just wrap up what you we'll, we'll have a quick wrap up and then. What, what you're saying, there is objective. Um, grounding, or at least it's grounded in axioms. Both of our positions are going to be grounded in axioms because you can't ground anything other yeah. than unless you want to go on and on forever. Yeah. So, so, or actually, you're grounding in a circular argument. I think almost with God is good, what is good, God, God, God is good. So, I, I think we are grounding it in something that's real and tangible that we all feel, which is pain and pleasure. And we all know that pleasure is good and pain is bad, right? I'm not talking necessarily about hedonistic pleasure here. I'm ta talking about that pleasure of happiness and well-being. Yeah, okay. Anything that feels good, and everything. So, is bad so thing. you have very good grounding. Uh, talking about moral currency, you're a currency for the, for the for a value system. These are value systems. Like aesthetics has has a currency, beauty, and what, however whatever unit beauty you like. Our unit of moral currency is pain and pleasure. Thank you. Uh, we'll just have a, a very very quick follow up, and then okay, short so response, and then you, next question. You, lead me, you actually led me quite nicely on to the second part. <laughs> Uh, Very quick, please. You say, <laughs> hey, you say that um, some people, I, I, don't, I don't, you almost essentially said, I don't interpret the Bible like the other people interpret the Bible. So then, how should we interpret the Bible? Thank because you. How should we interpret the Bible? Okay, question. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. In one particular way. Very quick response. Thank you very much. Thank you. Using your own morals to make that interpretation. Thank you. We'll have a very quick follow-up, and then next question. We want to get as many point. questions in as possible. If, if you want to know more about how we interpret the Bible, come back next week, and we'll talk about the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> right. You said how we interpret the Bible, but you didn't say... Thank, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Uh, we'll move on to the next question now. Um, so I'm going to go over this. The gentleman in the turquoise blue, bluish uh, jumper. Well, actually, 
actually, before we can we just do one at a time, because otherwise it will get confusing. Yeah. Right, so what's interesting in moral psychology is we look at ch children is actually a better example. So when a two-year-old does something to manipulate a mother, they're actually using intention and outcomes to arrive at an intentional goal. Now, we don't scold them in the same way we do a five-year-old, a 10-year-old, a 15-year-old. And what we have is a sliding scale of morality in humans. So you, you can forget other animals. We have that in humans. And this is what, why we have adulthood. But that's just an arbitrary line drawn. Uh, if you know anything about the Sorotage paradox, it's just an example of the Sorotage paradox, where you have to draw, draw an arbitrary line down for, for, for a, a continuum. Now, we have this continuum in humans. But it even exists in adult humans who have different faculties. They have different abilities to, uh, for example, certain autistics, to morally evaluate certain things. And that's based largely on empathy. But children down in moral development. Now, Lawrence Kohlberg has done some really interesting work to say that if you uh, teach children in their moral development, they morally develop much better if you teach them morality with moral reasoning than if you teach it with them with commands. So if you teach a child divine command theory, for example, don't do that, God, you know, because God, or if you actually give them because that's going to harm them, and you teach them empathy, you actually give them empathic skills, then they end up being, on all judgments of morality and psychology, far more better developed moral individuals. Um, just a second part of the question quickly, and then we'll have a response. question and then we're going to have a response. Thank so you. It's um, we'll have a response from the yes side. 
Okay, first, first of all, you said we could have objective morality or some kind of basis of morality with Darwinism. I wish I'd printed off quotes from him because you just... I don't care what he said. If you don't care what he said, how can you claim that you can get morality from him, but you don't bother from, to from read him? It? Well, from Darwinism, yeah, from his well, theory. He's no prophet of... developed a yeah, long way exactly. since Darwin. He's no prophet. That's a straw man of evolution to say it equals Darwinism. Like, he didn't know about genetic drift. He didn't even yeah. know about genetics. He it's didn't just, know about... Well, when, it's when just his assumptions, his theory. When, Sorry, when, I don't care about his opinion. Let Marine pass. Yeah, yeah please, can I so, yeah, yeah. Marine, I'm the only woman on the panel, I keep getting sorry, spoken sorry, over. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> no, you go, sister. I think, sorry. I think well, that, to be honest, the Bible did say. Uh, oh, a, man, a woman should speak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. When men are next week, next Thank week. you very much for that. No, 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 I, I think our questioner was, was raising an interesting issue, if I interpreted him correctly, because he was pointing out that these people uh, were made happy by what they did. They did something that we think is wrong, and you say, "Well, they, they, yes, they were wrong because they had the incomplete uh, knowledge. They were just they were just factually wrong." But doesn't that show that, that that's an issue of moral epistemology that they can get wrong? But the theory of doing something because it makes you happy doesn't give you an ontological grounding for what is factually right or wrong. D no, Thank I you. That's, that's we'll, we'll, that move on, we'll move on to another question. If you want to get money in Thank you. Um, no, but you hands up, please. Uh, questions. Um, so gentleman in the uh, black shirt. Okay. Um, could we see a rusty Abraham down people? And this is where we're talking about Hamish. Um, humanity, uh, depending on how important it is to us, humanity perhaps not possible. Um, how do you explain how humanity would be able to survive through the cosmic theory without a moral? Thank you. Um, I'd like to address that question to the yes side. Okay. Um, that's a question of moral epistemology. The moral argument is an argument about moral ontology. So it's an inquest, interesting question. I think moral revelation in a religious tradition, if it, if it's true, uh, it is useful, perhaps in, in helping people to know what's right and what's wrong, and in, in guidance and so on. But our, our stated position was we do not need to know about God or believe in God or believe in a particular uh, holy book or whatever in order to know the difference between right and wrong. Uh, we think people created in the image of, of God inherently. Um, Thank you. Um, yeah. We'll have a response from the yes side and then we will move on yeah. to the... Uh, 
Right, so to, to try and, and, and break it down without the, the fancy terminology, I think all people at whatever stage of history are able to have moral intuitions about what they ought to do or, and, and not do, and, and can know that without believing in, in a god or a particular revelatory tradition or anything like that. So, so your Stone Age man knows that it's wrong to murder someone just to you know, nick their necklace or, or whatever. Um, that's fine. But once you've said, uh, I, I know that it is objectively, that's a fact, that's something I discover, not something I invent. It doesn't depend on me or us. Even if we thought it was okay to murder people for their necklaces, actually we would be wrong. People who believe that sincerely are wrong and so on. You're saying there's a, a moral fact out there that I meet in my moral experience that, that tugs at me, that pushes at me. It says, don't do this, do do that. I'm obligated to behave in that way before this, this moral fact. What, what in reality, out there, outside of us, it best explains that, that fact of experience? Uh, and we're saying the thing that best explains it would be a, 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 a personal thing that can therefore prescribe and obligate, but a personal thing that is transcendent, that is above, that goes beyond individual persons or cu cultures and our decisions. Thank you. That, um, that's we'll have a response from the notes back. Yeah, just, just two very quick things to say. I think you can objectively ground that in the fact that it doesn't matter if our minds exist in, in the sense that um, if you intentionally uh, harm someone, uh, you know, for your own ends or whatever, for no, for no reasonable uh, reason, then uh, you, then that's self-evidently you know, harmful, and it's, if everyone did that in society, we would go down, down a chiper. Yeah. So, um, but also use the term obligated. I find it really interesting because actually obligation, moral obligation, I think is a, a really difficult term, a term to use, and I think it's problematic for you because the only, and you used it with valid, valid and binding, and the, we slip these terms in quite often, and you really need to ground, you, to ground out these terms because they're problematic. So obligated and binding means basically if you don't do that, that something will happen. And it basically just means heaven and hell. In fact, what it turns out is, is, is uh, it's circular. Um, morality, objective morality has to be um, binding and valid, which basically means you have to have someone to, to, that's outside of the, the world obliging you to do something, otherwise you're going to go to heaven or hell. Right? If you take away those terms, obligated and binding, actually you just have, have our ordinary morality. Can I say one, can I just give one uh, experiment done by Stephen Mason to talk about ordinary morality? So the idea is ordinary morality is, it presupposes atheism. And here's the example. So, so very quick. Very quick. Okay, <laughs> if you're going to inject a small child with an injection to immunize them, then you're giving them a small pain for a greater good. This is the basis of all theodicies for the problem of evil. You will, well, there's a greater good to come from all this evil, right? So if, if, if you, you're going to uh, be injected by, you're five years old by the way, by a doctor, he's a doctor, he's going to inject you. I'm not going to go over and rugby tackle him and punch him to the ground because he's going to cause you some harm because the greater good will necessarily come about. In the same way, if Christians are proper with their moral thesis, they should, if they see you getting beaten up on the other side of the road, you're an old granny and he's beating you up, right? They should not do anything because they should be obliged to let the greater good come about. This is Stephen Mason's theory. And the greater good coming about, what happens is Christian morality leads to moral paralysis. And, Christ, and morality, ordinary morality, is underwritten by atheism because atheists ordinarily 
would not do that. We'd run and save you. But Thank actually, you. there can be no gratuitous evil. So if you're being beaten up, that cannot be gratuitous evil. There must, must be a greater good to come out. We're just going to have a question for the audience, then I'll go straight back to you. So, thank you, everybody. Stephen Mason's paper. Awesome. Thank you, everybody. Um, I'm going to go to the woman in the black uh, top. Sorry. Pain and pleasure. Uh, pain and lack of. Sorry, pain and pleasure. Yeah. Carry on. Yeah, sorry, sorry. He, he was getting confused, he's on. I thought pain was pleasure. Yeah. Thank you. Oh, um, so we haven't, so we've just given examples. Yeah, I, I don't think I've ever bad-mouthed anything. Um, we are I think she just means that you are refusing to look at some parts of the Bible and being quite selective. I think that's what well, Being saying. selective, surely if it's God's word, all of it should be good. Well, yeah, but you're... Thank you. Yes, yes, yes. Can I speak Oh, my God, that's a problem. Go on. I'd like um, the yes side to have a, a sustained period of response now. Yeah, please. Let me Thank you. Finish. Thank you. Okay. What I was saying is that you are, you are being selective in that you're not, you're only looking at what certain parts and not other parts. I'm not saying that it's not all true. I'm just saying that it should not be at all. If oh, you're going to focus on some of the um, do, you, do you have anything else to say or would you like to hand back over to uh, me? You do, you do for example, have the, have the notion in Christian theology of, of, of progressive revelation and that later bits of revelation uh, can ab abrogate earlier bits of revelation and, and so on, particularly when bringing in Jesus and Jesus says, you know, you have heard it said, blah, 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 but I say uh, this, and yeah, it supersedes, that, that supersedes the mosaic rather law like and so on. So. I call that, and so does Justin Sheba calls that intertestamental, intercomponental moral relativism, yeah. which is to say, oh, look, this was bad in the Old Testament, but Jesus yeah. came along, and we've got different geographical, yeah. social... Uh, cultural context, and suddenly it's good. Yeah. Stoning of adulterers was bad, now we don't stole the stone adulterers. Hang on, how does that work? That looks like moral relativism. Yeah, and there's a big problem, like God could change his mind right now. Suddenly rape is fine, you don't know. You know what I mean? He's changed his mind before, he can change his mind again. Nineveh, if exactly. you know your Bible, he changed his mind in Nineveh. Exactly, thank he changed you. his mind. And also, you know, the whole um, superseding thing doesn't thank even you. really make any sense. That, thank you. The, the just, because of Psalms, you know. You just like to, the word so is true from what, the beginning what, in every one of them. I have a very quick response to the, to the lady's question, and then we'll move on again. What your position was was quite a classic um, uh, critique of consequentialism or utilitarianism, which uh, quite often is seen in, say, uh, this gentleman again, he walks into the uh, hospital and, and the guy says, you'll look really healthy, I'm going to use you to save five other people, so I'm going to cut you up. And, and, you know, 
without, this will take a long time, but there are loads of defences of that, which is uh, things like rule. If you look up consequentialism, say on the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, you will see that actually there's about 20 different types of consequentialism. Yeah. So it gets really, really yeah. complicated, but life is complicated. Yeah. Right? Thank you. So you have rule, you. something like, the thing I'd say, rule consequentialism is one of them. Yeah. Okay, I'm, I'm rule of thumb, which generally is going to... Yeah. We're going to take another question from the audience. Thank you. Um, the gentleman in the grey top. To be a Christian, mate. Thank you. We'll have a quick response. Um, I, I used to be a Christian since I was young, so you know I don't know what you're talking about. I, def I definitely know the points they're raising. I definitely know the God they're talking about, and I definitely know my Bible. So. Um, but to say 42,000 different denominations of Christianity, what you're doing is pointing out a very salient point that in fact there are as, there are as many gods as there are believers. Would the uh, the side like to respond to that comment? Again, you can you can in our argument we're appealing to a particular explanatory notion of a greatest possible being, personal being, grounding morality. But it is possible to hold in common uh, a belief in a greatest possible uh, being, whilst because of human fallibility having some differences over particular values, having differences over uh, whether you believe in a particular revelation or not, having differences on how you interpret different bits uh, of those uh, revelations. But I would say if it's possible for people within those overlapping interpretations to get things wrong, that's only possible because there's something there to get right. There's a fact of the matter to be got at. <coughs> so uh, bringing in moral fallibility highlights the reality of something objective that we're trying to get at and that different people's theories can be closer to or further from depending upon the facts of the matter. Thank okay, you. So we're going to go back to the um, audience now. Can I just, just one Very quick, very quick. Peter, if an alien came down to Earth and fought Quibblex with you, or someone else, right, this gentleman there, fought Quibblex with you, right? Exactly. So, <laughs> no, no, well, what is for? No, exactly. So, so <laughs> the fact is that if you're not really evaluating it. something, the first thing you will do in any sense of, of moral reasoning and moral uh, psychology and moral philosophy is, well, what, what happened? What was the, the result of doing that? And all humans, we know all humans do this intuitively. That's how we moralize. Thank you. Very quick response. Uh, I think it's wrong to simply take into account the consequences of actions as consequentialism does. What about the intentionality of actions? Absolutely, and I agree with you, actually. Yeah, yeah I agree. Yeah. Excellent. Um, but we'll go to the audience for another question first. Um, the gentleman in the black jumper.
the yes side? Sure. So I would say, uh, uh, given the differences between God and us, if, if, if there is a God, we can't hope to comprehend the nature of God. But as we can hope to understand something of the nature of God, and to, uh, as Aquinas talked about, see that there is at least a, a, an analogy and a similarity uh, oh, yeah. between uh, God and us, particularly as, as beings made in his image, uh, as we believe, that there's a point of, of connection there, because God has created us in the world. Um, but yes, we're, we're finite and we're fallible, and there are, there are evident difficulties in doing that. But again, in a sense, those difficulties and the, the importance of debating the differences and trying to get at the truth only highlights the fact that there's a, a truth that it really is important uh, to, to try and get at. Thank you. The no side? Um, so God, interestingly, cannot... Uh, if he cannot, exists. Yeah, if, if God exists, he cannot know that he's omniscient for a start because you can't know that you don't know everything. And also, God, in the same way that we cannot... Like, true, proper scepticism, we don't know that we're not a brain in a vat. God doesn't know that he's not a god in a vat and there's a god above him. It's literally epistemologi epistemologically impossible for that to happen. So you've got this infinite regress of God. So some really interesting arguments around this. But also God cannot know, and we said this earlier, and it's not really been answered, God cannot know that he's good. So in order to, for God to know he's good, he has to be able to have an, a, a, a sense of moral reasoning outside of his own just beingness in order to evaluate himself. We do it, and we're made in the image of God, supposedly. I morally evaluate myself by what I've done and the consequences that, that, that have pertained that, you know, from what I've done. So th that makes perfect sense to me. It's grounded in reality, and I can test it scientifically. Right? That God can't even do that, to me, makes God just incomprehensibly incoherent. Thank you. We're, we're running out of time, so we're going to have to... I, I, yeah, I just want to... Very quickly, very quickly. Yeah, I, I was just going to say um, that... You were saying like God is incomprehensible and he's uh, distant. Surely if he's all-powerful, he could make himself comprehensible. Thank you. Um, we're going to go back to the audience for a question. Um, the lady at the back there in the uh, black top. Who's right? Oh, uh, yeah, I think I got it here. Um, Several times. Yeah, so one, one of the kind of the main examples that people generally give are Numbers 31, 17 to 18, uh, where the Israelites are battling the Midianites, and um, they kill all the men, and they bring the women and the children, and Moses says to them, what the hell are you doing? Uh, I'm paraphrasing, by the way, he doesn't say that. <laughs> but he's like, uh, you know, what are you doing? Why have you got the women and the children? Kill the children. Kill all the women who have touched and slept with another man. And the little girls and shit, they're, they're yours. Yeah? That's usually uh, what people point to. But also, um, but I've got the uh, the Bible verse, so you can look it up yourself. Also, see if the one works. where um, if if a man rapes a woman, yeah, rather than saying he's yeah. bad, she has to force marry him. Yeah, which actually still exists in certain cultures. Yeah, certain and I just find it funny like, because I would like to have. Would yeah. like it, to it's never mentioned throughout the Bible, neither in the New Testament. Has any been bad. any rule about rape at all is not mentioned apart those. Thank, two sorry, things. a very quick response to that. No. Uh, um, yeah, so the, the, yes, the yes side, um, what's your response to that, uh, Tori? I think all these uh, issues about, about bits of the Old Testament uh, and so on aren't really on the topic of the debate uh, tonight, um, which wasn't... Only uh, have is, you, it, it, is the biblical <laughs> God, and it's a, 
necessary for morality, but is, is, is a God necessary for morality? Um, you know, we, we could take all evening debating the ins and outs of, of particular um, biblical passages if, if we do that. Let me just recommend to you, um, if that is a, an issue that weighs with you, uh, one source to go to, which is Paul Copan's no. book, uh, is, God, is God a Moral Monster? Uh, by Paul Copan, which goes into a lot of the context of a lot of these Old Testament passages uh, that people raise. Can I recommend Thank a you. fellow Christian called Tom Stark, who wrote the rejoinder to that, which is, is God a Moral Compromiser? And it's twice as big as, as Paul Copan's, and it totally destroys it. And he's a Christian. Thank Tom you. Um, we've got time for two more questions if we're fairly quick. So um, everyone put your hands up if you've got questions. Um, uh, let's go to the back, actually. Um, you, sir, right at the back, green top. Okay, that was a bit quiet, so I'll, I'll repeat the question in case other people didn't hear it. It's saying um, that surely within a process of natural selection, uh, if uh, certain moral behaviour uh, helps uh, brute to uh, survive and you'll survive, that'll, that'll spread due to natural selection, and so a Darwinian process can uh, explain morality. But what that explains, granted, granted that, that historical process, what it explains is the spread of certain behaviour patterns uh, within the population. Um, if you add a full stop to that explanation, that is, in a sense, an explaining away of morality rather than an explanation of it, because it still begs the further question, is that, is that behaviour that is, that is useful, is it good? It can't, it can't be good and morally obligatory simply because it happens to be useful. You're then explaining away what is good in terms of, oh, it happens to be useful in your evolutionary past. Uh, so I don't think uh, that's a good enough explanation. And an impersonal process, even if you know it happens somehow to arrive at behaviours that actually do uh, match up to uh, the way that you ought to behave, well, what what explains again the prescriptive and obligatory uh, ideal nature of, of that that moral ought that your behaviour happens to comport with because of your because of your history? So I think you don't need to deny that evolutionary story, but I don't think on its own it's enough to account for what we need in moral experience. Do you Thank know what, you. I would actually agree, I, well I would agree, I would agree yeah. with Peter, yeah, uh, it, it's, it, um, it's functional, so morality is functional in, in the evolutionary sense, in biological and psychological sense per se, um, however the difference between us and other animals is our awareness of others and our self-awareness and our empathy and intersubjectivity which means that, that we can harness that and use logical reasoning and rationality. It's why, it's why you can't be moral without rationality yeah. uh, and intention. And so all of these components are necessary for making a rounded moral creature. Yeah. And so, so I actually kind of agree with Peter, to be honest, but, but I would add a lot to that, that then makes that process, not a moral process, but allows us to arrive at uh, a moral agency. Thank you. Unfortunately, we've only got time for one more question before we go into closing statements, so... Um, David. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I'd like to direct a question to Mary, if I can. Um, you talked earlier, or you guys talked earlier about the, uh, effective 
Thank you. Um, so yeah, why should we be good? Yeah, oh, thanks for that question, David. Cool. Um, well, I'll just start by the, the axiom of the no cycle for pleasure and pain. And I think the case was made very well that it's a, it's a fundamental problem with util utilitarianism is that if the rapist's pleasure overrides the pain of the, of the person being raped, then pleasure and pain can't be all there is. And I think the axiom kind of fall, falls on its face there. Lots of people tweet utilitarianism many, many times to kind of avoid it, but then you start, in, then you start invoking rules and laws, and then you get back to our question, why are those rules and laws, why are they obligatory? Because you can't explain them away with pain and pleasure, because somebody's pleasure may be at somebody else's expense, and it might cause them pain. And basically, what you've got with utilitarianism is one outweighs the other, and yeah, I, I didn't... <laughs> She's not a fan. I'm not, I'm, not a, I, I'm, I'm not a fan of utilitarianism, but a lot of philosophers aren't. It's so, what about why? why we should be good? Because we were created in a moral sphere in which it makes sense to be good. Well, why? This is such a good question, and you really need to... Because actually what it comes down to is because heaven or because hell. And that yeah. is no good. That's like saying uh, you should be good to... Or you should be bad to avoid prison, or you should be good to... to win the lottery. To win the lottery, right? So, that, so what John is saying there, surely, what, what he's saying is it, it's no good to try and ground morality simply in your self-interest because you want to, to gain or avoid certain ends. But their position is that morality is grounded in the no, self-interest of pain or pleasure. I, I don't think there's nothing wrong with, with self-interest and morality aligning, but to ground Too morality fun fundamentally in self-interest... You, you, you just deflected answering that question by uh, applying it to myself, that's a two-cockway fallacy. I need you, and he needs you, to answer why yeah. should you be good? We'll have because it's the right thing to do. Why is it the right thing to do? But that's asking the question, why, why I ought I to it. do? I can why it. ought I to do what I ought to do? It's well, because you ought to do it. Why? There is no, there is no further why. No, there is, this is a problem with intrinsic. This is why deontology doesn't work. It's because deontology, so in, in, in a moral statement or in, in logic, you have an if and then statement, a, a protasis and apodosis. So what this is, is like, if you want this, then this should happen. And what he's doing is, then this should happen, then this should happen. Uh, but actually, morality is goal-oriented. So it's largely goal-orientated, which, which means that if, if I should fill my car with oil, sounds like that's a good idea. But if I'm a, a scientist who's testing whether car engines work well if you don't fill it with oil, then I shouldn't fill my car with oil. In, in other that's words, like my statement story. depends on the if part, and he's not coming up with the if part. He's just saying, be good, God, good, God, good, God, God, good. And I'm saying, if you want, I am grounding it in an axiom, if you want the world to be a better place where we have less pain and more pleasure for all of us, then bloody well be good. Thank you. We'll have a response. <laughs> we're going to have a response from the yes side, and then we're going to go into closing statements. So a very brief response, then closing statements. But is the, is the goal that the other side are pointing to simply a, a description of reality that you can take it or leave it, or something that is intrinsically good to aim at should you want your car to to run is it just your subjective preference that you 
want to use the car in that particular way, or we want to use human life in a particular way, use our existence in a particular way, or is there actually a way in which you ought to use life and, and existence that you are objectively obligated to pursue? Exactly. Thank you very much. Thank you. Very interesting question time. So, without further ado, we move into our closing statements. Each side has a seven-minute closing statement. I'll, just, I'll see you in a bar. <laughs> um, so, I'd like to start with the no side, if they would like to give their seven-minute closing statement. Thank you very much. Okay. The no side. No side. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we won! <laughs> Take that, Peter. <laughs> Thank you. Seven minutes. Off you go. Seven minutes, and me. Okay. Alright, now I'm really nervous. Yeah. Um, sorry. That's page one. Yeah, that's page one. <laughs> okay, so I think we've kind of pretty much established, and I would think proved, at least logically, or I think I've proved, uh, that you can talk about morals, you can even wonder where they come from without any appeal to God. In fact, we do this all the time. I would like to, in, uh, in fact, uh, you know, just kind of have an example. We didn't really say this in the discussion. But generally, when you try and teach people morality, and you even try and teach your children morality, you can do so without any appeal to God. And I find that kind of amazing, if you really think about that, if you really think God is required for morality. Um, you know, you can say, you know, it, it hurts, stop doing that, how would you feel if I did that to you? And they can understand that. The UN Charter has, a, uh, has an entire charter on human rights, and they don't have a single mention of God, and it can be understood, it can be implied. The frameworks in my opinion, are better, way better than the Bible. They address issues which are not addressed in the Bible. Um, it's been uh, found by experimental means, uh, via Lawrence Kohlberg, that to have these kind of just rule-based um, uh, beliefs is, uh, are no good. That if you had a kid, uh, you teach children why something is wrong and gave them reasons for it, that they become uh, better learners, they become more competent and better people. Uh, than those that are just simply given random rules. Uh, morality can be explained completely naturalistically, or they can be even explained supernaturally without any appeal to God. And of course, we would prefer to explain them naturally. Um, it definitely has some use for you. It has benefit for society. It's better for you. Um, it can be explained completely with just an appeal to my emotions and my mental capacities that could have been, again, uh, placed in me simply from natural selection and so on and so forth. So my feeling of empathy, uh, my mental faculties of reason, uh, my theorizing on the consequences of my actions, all of these that are present in everybody can explain where you get moral knowledge from. Um, Peter in his online YouTube video uses the principle of credulity to explain moral reasoning, which is tantamount to saying, I know it's right because it feels right. I think our position can also use the principle of credulity and explain it in naturalistic terms without ever evoking a God. Uh, it seems to us that morality, again, this, this was raised by Jonathan here, is, is not something that is intrinsic in nature, but intrinsic in the mind. So it's uh, something like, it's, and it's like aesthetics, in that a painting has no actual beauty in it, but we project beauty on it. In the same way, a moral action is not intrinsically moral, but because of our own mental uh, capacities and functions, we imprint morality onto it. Um, there are uh, amazing points that, uh, <laughs> Jonathan, you've pretty much said most of my points, so that's cool. Awesome. Um, yeah. Uh, but, amazing. you know, yeah, you're amazing. Yeah. So, um, 
that morality pre uh, presupposes a uh, atheism with the uh, theodicies being theodicies. Thanks, Michael. Being used to explain uh, by appeal to consequences that all uh, evils are necessary in this world to bring about a, a better good. It doesn't really make sense why you should be moral in a world that is essentially planned out for you by a, a you know a, an omnipotent God. Uh, because doing so, trying to stop evil in the world, surely would disrupt his plan because that evil has some kind of purpose. Um, so I think the Christian is at a loss on why he should even try and prevent evil in the world, um, and an atheist really is not. So I think also we, I think to hold these rules uh, from you know either uh, being a biblicalist or a Quranist or whatever, um, kind of stops morality from developing any further. If you kind of think that 2,000 years ago they had it all right and they had all these rules about what is moral, then we can't make any moral progress. Um, there are many things that we've made progress in that are not to be found in the Bible, and they warrant explaining. So, such as democracy. Democracy not mentioned or condoned in the Bible, yet we all seem to think it's good. Rape is condemned in this modern society. Where is it mentioned in the Bible? Where is it condemned thusly? <laughs> slavery is condoned in every bit of the Bible. There is no condemnation of slavery, and yet we agree that it's bad. We've made moral progress. It's countenance in the Bible. Absolutely. Read the Bible. You guys need to read your Bible. Read the bloody Bible. God, it was used for 2,000 years by, and it, they generally use a curse of hell, isn't it? Yeah. To, uh, it was used by Christians to countenance. And it's interesting that you said, oh, good people, moral people, uh, stop slavery by doing X, Y, and Z. Well, actually, it was the Bible and divine revelation, progressive divine revelation, that obviously wasn't progressive enough. Yeah. There were Christians the, on both the, sides the, of the debate. Yeah. And they both the used Bible, Bible verses. Used. Now, God knew that that was a revelation to humanity and still used that and, and, and produced that knowing that it would be used to countenance slavery and to defend slavery. Then that was a really weird decision to have that as a revelation text. Sorry. Yeah. So, you know, and there are massive problems with divine command theory. There is no intrinsic value in love, kindness, uh, love or kindness or any of the qualities of God. Just because they're associated with God is what makes them valuable. However, anything can be associated with God and suddenly it's valuable. He could overnight, part of his quality could be to be hateful or to be a liar or whatever, and that would just be valuable, that would be right. It also just doesn't make sense how we usually think about morality. So when somebody is drowning in front of you or being murdered and stabbed, you don't have to flick through your Bible to work out if it's a bad deed. I don't know of anyone who does that. Yeah, no, no, exactly. That's the point. That's the point. We, wait, have, wait, the wait, wait. we have the capacity totally to work out what is moral naturally. Well, we don't deny uh, that. Yeah. We, 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 all, we all agree on this panel that we yeah, can yeah, use our rationality to absolutely. get to basic moral and, truths. And that's great. And I heard that what you said, but you don't need to appeal to a God to write that on your heart. And to ground it. Yeah, and to you ground You ground that in the fact that, you know what, it harms someone else. Exactly. And that feels bad for me. It feels bad. Yeah, because I'm empathetic. Okay. Absolutely. I, 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 don't, I, I, don't need, I don't need to ground it in anything No, sorry, you have just under a minute left. Oh, okay. Uh, I'll just try and round it up, I guess. Um, it, can I just say Larry Nucci? So, yeah, so yeah I've got the Larry Nucci thing here, but you carry on. Larry Nucci uh, did a test on Amish teenagers, and, and they said, they used divine command theory and said, well, God is good, and God's, so we, we know that don't hit people because God says don't hit people, so we don't do that. And, and Larry Nucci said, well, what if God didn't make a comment about don't hit people? And they all went, uh we wouldn't hit people, it's still immoral. In other words, people who are divine command theorists always still defer to consequentialism and attributes and ethics. So, so it really doesn't matter whether you have some objective morality out here because we're all subjectively interpreting it anyway and we actually pragmatically use consequentialism to, to 
to ground our own morality on a daily basis. You'll do it tonight, all of you. Yeah. I'd like to thank the No Side for their excellent closing uh, statements. Miriam, Miriam and Peter, you have seven minutes to close your arguments. Thank you very much. I think it's really important to, to keep in mind this distinction between epistemology and ontology, that is, between how we, uh, how we come to know moral facts, how we make moral judgments and so on, and whether or not there is something out there that we're discovering, that we get right in our moral judgments according to the, the facts of the matter. And as Miriam says, there's no controversy on this panel about the fact that we can all use moral reasoning uh, and that even I grant that, that consequentialism is at least part of the way uh, in which we do moral reasoning to discover what the, the moral facts are of the matter may be. The question is, how do you explain the existence of those moral facts and the, the objective incumbency, the prescriptive and obligatory and ideal nature of those facts that we discover? Accepting that consequences can sometimes justify permitting particular evils, for example, doesn't mean endorsing consequentialism in the sense of thinking uh, that the value of an action is wholly derived from or constituted by its consequences. It doesn't mean endorsing consequentialism as a moral ontology as opposed to epistemology. The consequences of an action must be judged, can be judged uh, to be good or bad by some transcendent uh, standard. Uh, even uh, if God on occasion uses uh, uh, consequence, the consequences of an action to justify that in terms of a greater good uh, theodicy, that doesn't mean that God is a consequentialist. Uh, good consequences aren't necessarily sufficient to justify just any act on God's part. Uh, outweighing goods must be at least consistent with God's character. And what about intentions? As well, we mentioned, John O. granted earlier that intentions do matter uh, in morality. But how does consequentialism fit those in? Um, also, it's not necessarily the case, I think, that when there's an evil, God has to have some outweighing uh, good. I would appeal to Peter Van Bagen's uh, argument against uh, one of the other premises of the evidentialist moral argument, uh, pointing out the uh, inevitable vagueness of uh, allowing certain amounts of evil for certain amounts of end. So I think it is possible for the theist to grant that there can be uh, some degree of gratuitous evil in reality. Um, God is uh, uh, the greatest possible being, I think, uh, who gives uh, an adequate grounding to morality, just uh, necessarily speaking, consequentialism, um, has problems, whether as an epistemology or certainly as an ontology, for explaining values. Uh, doesn't consequentialism entail that uh, actions have no moral value until they have consequences? And no determinate value, therefore, until all of the consequences of an action have occurred. But when have all of the consequences of an action ever occurred? Uh, is that at all coherent? How do you choose between um, different versions of, say, utilitarianism, hedonism, etc.? He said there's a lot on the table out there. Is one objectively obligated to promote certain consequences? How do consequences explain the prescriptive and obligatory nature of morality, of moral duties? Do intentions and character count? John admits that they do. 
Uh, consequences for who have this issue? Is it for the majority? Well, then what about what happens to minority rights under consequentialism? Um, consequentialism, the end, would always seem automatically to justify uh, the means. But what about the common sense notion and phrase, well, the end doesn't always justify the means? So I think if God is there, that gives a better grounding for morality. Uh, he is, uh, uh, it's greater to be the paradigm of goodness than to conform to it. God doesn't just conform to goodness, he is goodness. When you get to God, you've reached a metaphysical and moral ultimate, an axiom, if you like, um, the explanatory stopping point. But that doesn't mean you can't explain or unpack what goodness is or wherein the goodness of God consists. You can still explain that God is loving, kind, merciful, etc., uh, by nature, but that would be an explanation of what the nature of morality is, not an explanation of why uh, morality uh, is good, as it were. So we come back to uh, the moral argument. Uh, they appeal to the possibility of Platonism, but that's to invoke uh, abstract objects which are difficult in and of themselves and can't really explain um, the personal nature of morality, that neither the prescriptive nor the obligatory content, and it would also be to invoke a huge cosmic coincidence that there are, in reality, these necessarily existing abstract forms of justice uh, and love and so on that just somehow exist in this somehow non-personal realm of, of reality, uh, and then, by good fortune, uh, human beings capable of moral reasoning and working out that love is a good thing happen to revolve on this particular planet. That seems to be a huge coincidence to invoke, which would be much uh, more uh, economically explained by saying that there's a personal creator of the world who intended it for there to be moral beings such as ourselves who can know about the morality that's grounded in his character. So I'd just like to, to end with a quote from the Welsh philosopher H.P. Owen, which for me summarises quite neatly uh, the nub of the moral argument. He says, on the one hand, objective moral claims clearly transcend every human person and culture because people and cultures can get morality wrong. But on the other hand, it's contradictory to assert that impersonal, non-personal claims are entitled to the allegiance of our wills. The only solution to this paradox, says Owen, is to suppose that the order of objective moral claims is in fact rooted in the personality of God. Thank you very much. Five minute <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much to all of the speakers, Miriam, Peter, Jonathan, and Boaz, uh, and thank thank you to all of you guys who turned up today and asked all of the questions. It was a really interesting discussion. So thank, thank you very much. much.